The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is COO of The Finish Line, Melissa Greenwell. Her new book is Money on the Table, How to Increase Profits Through Gender-Balanced Leadership. There is no question that women, women are underrepresented at the top of the corporate ladder or the corporate world. Earlier this year, Melissa Greenwell was named, Greenwell was named Finish Line's executive vice president and chief operating officer. Uh, she explains in her book what kinds of actions actually do have an impact on the number of women in leadership roles and discusses what both businesses and women themselves can do to help drive change. Her Advice and expertise on gender in the workplace is featured in Harvard Business Review, Fortune, CNN Money, and Forbes. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Melissa. Thank you, Catherine. Okay, so there is no question that women are underrepresented at the top of the corporate world. Um, So why is this a problem, uh, and what can we do about it? Well, it's a problem for our businesses because uh, while many successful, we could be far more successful if we had a greater diversity of thought that comes from both genders. So in the book, I describe some of the brain science behind male and female brains, which causes us to be uh, predispositioned to think differently about things, communicate differently, problem solve differently. And without that uh, diversity of thought, then we're really not creating the best solutions and uh, services for our customers. How do we know that? I mean, do we have statistics saying that, you know, women's brains are different than men's brains and this is going to make a difference in terms of, I guess, the bottom line, how much money the company makes? Yes. Well, um, there's a lot of research on uh, on male and female brains, which is interesting because um, nobody really studied this stuff until the 1990s, up until that point. Researchers assumed that all brains were the same. Uh, but now research shows that um, there are certain traits that, as a gender, uh, females demonstrate um, to a greater degree than men, such as um, intuition and listening and uh, empathy, and um, male brains are more predispositioned to be more um, risk-takers and action-oriented. And so, you know, if we have a room that um, strictly has one kind of thinking and doesn't have all of these various traits in the room, then then we're probably not getting to the best um, solutions. We could be um, taking risks when we need to be stepping back and thinking about things a little bit more um, on the business side, um, you know, there's article after article after article that uh, points to companies with more gender balance and leadership um, being more profitable than those who are not. Companies that have more gender balance on their boards uh, being more profitable than those who are not. Well, given that, and we know that, and we have that information, and as you say, now the information is out there. But why we, we don't seem, it seems to me anyway, we're still not acting on it for some reason. We seem mm-hmm. to be sort of wrestling with the same issues over and over. I know you talk about mentoring in the book. You talk about also in other countries, apparently, I, are they taking that uh, perhaps they're taking more active roles and in getting uh, increasing a, a gender balance in the corporate world? We're not doing it. Not sure why. Um, to me, it's a reflection, and this is just my bias, even on the um, recent uh, elections. I mean, that the United States perhaps it just isn't ready to have a woman as our commander in chief to be the head of the of our you know the head of the free world. 
Right, right. Well, you know, it's interesting because I I do think that the United States uh, is a bit behind some other countries on this topic. I think until uh, recently, I'm not sure anyone actually believed the business case. Um, That's why I really like to talk about um, the brain science with executive leadership because it is something that resonates with them. Um, You can debate all day long why a company is uh, successful, whether they have men or women in leadership, but you can't debate science. You can't debate um, the fact that men and women think differently. I mean, if we translate that into our personal lives, we think about um, our families and how often a couple wants to have um, both genders as children. You know, they may have two boys and want to try once more for a girl, and that's because they want to experience, they want to have the experience of raising both genders in their family because for whatever reason, intuitively, um, they know that brings uh, some balance, but in the business world, we sort of don't want to talk about any of that. So I think, um, you know, putting this in terms of helping people understand um, the why you know, social um, reasons won't get us there. We've been talking about diversity for decades and the importance of having um, diversity in leadership, and that has barely moved uh, the needle. So perhaps um, talking about it from the brain science perspective may help. Um, Europe seems to be leading the, the pack. Some Nordic countries seem to be leading the pack in terms of um, taking action here, um, they no longer need to be convinced that it helps their businesses. They are um, taking steps to implement reporting uh, requirements in for their public companies. Um, they're taking steps to set goals uh, relative to having uh, more females in leadership. And these are all things that the United States hasn't done yet. Well, in your book, you interviewed uh, women CEOs and, and senior leaders. Uh, did you find that there was a common theme in, in their insights or in their advice? Um, absolutely. You know, the common theme really amongst all of the executive leaders, which would have been, um, you know, all of the female leaders and all of the male leaders who are actually making progress is that they simply don't accept that they're are not female candidates out there or not females in their organizations to promote. So they go outside of their typical networks, um, you know, outside of what is known and comfortable to find um, to find more female candidates for their leadership roles and, and for their boards. You know, often board members are hired uh, through, um, you know, people that they know, the networks that have been established. And, you know, for those boards who are getting more gender balance, um, they're, they're reaching outside of what they've typically known as their comfortable networks. And once they've done that, it seems to me, or you talk about you uh, talk about this in the book, um, you're, you're a big fan of mentoring. Mentoring is a big thing. And uh, my question is, what and this been mentoring for quite a while, uh, I, I think. I mean, you came from human resources, so I understand it. But what makes a mentoring program really work? Uh, and if you're going to have a mentoring program, let's say for, for women, uh, should women have female mentors? Is that necessary? Um, so to answer that last question, um, no, I don't think that it is necessary to have a female mentor uh, I, I think that's great, but, um, you know, right now in the world, there are far more male executives than there are females, and we really need um, the men to help, um, uh, you know, propel women into leadership. So any executive, uh, any executive should be a mentor to their high potential talent, and, and if they focus on their high potential female talent, um, they will help bring those women along that much faster um, you know, mentoring programs can be formal or informal. Within uh, my company at Finish Line, uh, we do have a formal program. We make sure that we link uh, our high potential female talent with uh, key executives who can help them with specific things that they're working on uh, in their careers. 
But, you know, once you start doing that on a formal basis, uh, we find that other people uh, sort of join in informally. Other people start stepping forward in the organization, asking for mentoring as well. So I I do think that uh, formal mentoring programs uh, are and initiatives are very necessary, uh, but certainly that's not the only form they can take. Now let's talk about the work environment uh, specifically, also as particularly as it relates to females, to women in the workplace, because women end up uh, being the ones who get pregnant, have the babies, uh, often need more flexible time, take time off from work. How does it, that affect their ability to actually become COOs or CEOs of companies? I mean, does that have a negative impact on their ability to go up the corporate ladder? Well, I certainly think up until recent times that um, has been the case. And I think that's been the case largely because of attitudes about um, providing flexible work environments. You know, one thing that we're seeing that is uh, common with women starting families and millennial men is that they all want this kind of flexibility. Millennial men want to be more involved parents than perhaps um you know, what, what has been a traditional responsibilities of the past. And so I think companies are, are going to have to, um, you know, think about this differently, and, and many are providing flexible work uh, environments for their up-and-coming executives, both male and female. You know, obviously, um, women are always going to be the ones to have the babies, right? That's not going to change. Uh, and... Uh, we saw our own organization lose many uh, talented females about the time they were starting families. Now, if you think about it, at this point in their careers, they're, you know, managers, they're supervisors, they might be directors, even vice presidents. And so as a company, you've invested years in uh, training and developing this person. So to have that talent just you know, walk out the door and not come back uh, is is a huge loss, and it's a huge impact to the business. So I think if we all start thinking about this um, a little bit differently and understanding that the world the world works twenty four seven, and uh, we we have to figure out how we're 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 going to give a little bit to to get more. Uh, at the end of the day, the companies that are changing their practices and policies are, are seeing increased productivity. All right. So you've made an investment, your company and other companies, in, as you say, in training, been in the company for a long time. It's really not good business to just let them go. I'd like to have the, your feedback, though, that article that was in the New York Times, I think, two days ago about how pregnancy changes the, uh, the brain in ways mm-hmm. that may help mothering. Did you read that article? I did. I did. Yeah, Uh, which I found interesting because it's a pregnancy and mothering, I guess, actually changes the plasticity of the brain, the brain because you lose uh, gray matter and become more nurturing and and, uh, more protective and all those kinds of things. Well, how does that affect you getting back to work, let's say, after three months or six months? Because this changes in the brain um, lasts for, I guess, according to this article, uh, what, two years? Yeah. Well, you know, that, that's interesting, and, and I believe that that science to be true. I don't um, think that any of that really impacts, um, you know, a woman's performance in the workplace. I think, though, that we do have to allow women for lots of reasons to either, you know, take a pause or, or come back um, to work gradually. You know, where we lose women is when they go on leave, and they're gone for 12 weeks, and um, we expect them to go, you know, zero to, to 60 overnight. So the day comes, the Monday morning one, it's time to go back to work, and they're slammed from, you know, staying at home full-time with their child for 12 weeks to, um, you know, back to their, you know, 40, 50, 60-hour work weeks. And, and so in our company, um, we tell new moms, look, you tell us um, – how you want to transition back into the workforce, if it's part-time, if it's work from home, uh, if it's more flexible hours, um, you know, t- 
tell us how you want to do that, and we will um, do everything in our power to accommodate that. You know, understanding that, you know, certain jobs um, uh, don't allow for that flexibility, but, but so many do, and we don't put any time frames around that. So, you know, if they need uh, a transition plan that's 24 months, then we're going to work with them to make that happen. So I, I think, you know, relative to what happens um, in female brains when they, they have babies and, um, you know, the first couple years of, of life there, I, I think companies can help just by um, making the transition back into their uh, full-time career a little bit easier. So understanding, which is important, understanding the science or the neuroscience, I guess, is what we what it is, that this kind of emotional attachment to their babies is what happens in the brain with mm-hmm. women. Because you mentioned the millennials, the men do, it's different. This generation of millennials, the fathers want to stay home as well, but they also don't have the brain change. It's a little bit different for them. Right. Maybe easier to make the transition right. to come back. Uh, so... Are you saying like in your company, and I know you were in human resources, do you, it's tailor-made for each, let's say each um, each employee, each female employee uh, who is taking a leave I, yeah, because it is absolutely, different? Absolutely. Everybody's scenario is, is different. Everybody has a different uh, support system around them. And, and so, you know, one size fits all just, just doesn't work when you're talking about um, starting families and, and raising families and also managing a career. Is this just unique to y- your company? Obviously, I'm sure it's not just unique to your company, but is it costly to do this? Is this, I mean, is, is there's a cost benefit, obviously, but is it costly to be able to, or to have to, or to sit down with each individual female employee who you want to retain and have this kind of very special way of transitioning from home to, to work? Uh, you know, no, actually, I, I, I don't believe that it adds any uh, cost to the company. Now, certainly it would if, if we said, you know, um, we're, we're going to pay, you know, um, we're, we're going to pay fully for as much time off, at, off as you want. Um, that's, not, that's not their ask. You know, their, act, their ask is for time and for flexibility. It's not for money. And so, um, obviously, you know, we have paid maternity and paid paternity leave. Um, but, um, you know, beyond that, if, if a new parent wants more time off, uh, it's not an additional cost to the company. And as you point out, you know, the cost benefit is we, we get to retain that employee, uh, which is, is far more valuable to our business. You also talk about women have to take responsibility for their own behavior so that they initiate this transition and also, I mean, they have to do it themselves as well and have a kind of a list of things that they need to do and also some of the mistakes that women do make so that they wind up not going back to work. Talk about some of those. Well, I, I think a lot of women assume that their companies are are not going to be flexible and, and recognizing that, you know, Companies are in all different places relative to this topic. Some are very progressive. Some um, haven't been doing it at all and are very rigid around their uh, policies. But, you know, if you don't ask, um, then you're for sure not going to get uh, what what you want. And so I think more women have to um, step forward and, you know, push the envelope a little bit when it comes to, uh, you know, in this example, you're a new mom and, and uh, you, you don't want to leave your job, you don't want to leave your company, but, um, you know, perhaps the, the situation just makes it really difficult for you to stay. I, I would really advise new moms to start having the conversation um, early because by the time you go on maternity leave and um, you've kind of dealt mentally with the stress of, of making that decision, um, you know, it, it might just be too late. So I think these conversations around, you know, what does that transition um, both out and, and back in um, to to uh, the company, what does that look like? I think those conversations um, need to start months and months in advance. Well, well, given that, what about, what would you say just in general 
uh, some of the biggest mistakes that women make that undermine their own yeah, advancement, yeah, not necessarily with women, pregnancy. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I think women make um, the mistake of assuming that their organizations won't support them, and they assume they, they know uh, what the answer is going to be, and they, you know, kind of go to the negative. They assume that the answer is going to be no. Um, I think also, um, you know, providing solutions to your em- employer, you know, for example, maybe there are a, a couple of women who want to job share and if they create a plan and take it to their employer and, um, you know, talk to them about how that can work, um, a flexible work arrangement might be uh, much more appetizing to that employer so I, I think, you know, women shouldn't assume that um, just because it's always been this way, it's always going to be this way in the future. Um, uh, that's probably the, the biggest mistake that women make. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. There, there's something there that holds us back as women that, that fear. Well, they're going to say no anyway, so why even bother? Right. Why even right. ask? Uh, when And I've had this conversation with other uh, CEOs, women of other companies, and they'll say, you know, men will ask. I mean, they don't, they'll don't. get no or yes, whatever it is, but they're not afraid to ask. And there is right. that, still that right. kind of, uh, we're afraid to and, ask for some right. reason. And 50% yeah. of the time, uh, you know, we, we do get what we want when we ask. So <laughs> those are not that odd. What about, you know, we don't, we only have a few minutes left, so I wanted, like, your story or just, you know, what about you made it? You are at the top of the corporate ladder, so how did you do it? I mean, you've had, you've been successful. Uh, give us a few you know, points on how yeah. you did it and maybe what we well, can do. I, I certainly had great mentors in my career, and most of those mentors um, have been men. Um, you know, they, they pushed me outside of my comfort zone. And so over time, I think I developed this muscle memory, um, you know, to, to be more confident and to ask for more responsibility. You know, very, very early in my career, it was my first, um, you know, professional job, um, not long out of, of school. I was uh, presented with an opportunity to take on a uh, supervisory role at the company. It was it was for the same company, but uh, it was in a different town, and I didn't know anybody there. I didn't know anybody in that division, and I sat there giving my boss all these reasons why I probably wasn't ready to take on that um, that responsibility. And he said, "You know, um, why don't why don't you try?" giving me all of the reasons why you might be successful versus not being successful. And he literally made me sit there and, and say out loud the reasons why I might be successful. And I think if that conversation had not happened so early in my career, um, well, for sure, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. Um, that, that was, you know, I, I was not, what do they say, your brains are fully formed when you're 26. So I was in my early 20s. Uh, I think that conversation definitely had an impact on my brain and and the way that I thought about uh, future opportunities. So I've had a great deal of support uh, and mentoring in my career, uh, and I think that's helped. And and then the only other thing that that I would say has helped is that, um, you know, I've always been focused on the work and how else I can add value versus being very focused on uh, titles. So I I wanted the responsibility and I wanted to make the impact that came with the position. Uh, And I was, you know, fortunate in that the uh, title came with it. But, you know, I I did raise my hand and and ask for responsibilities that were not within my uh, subject matter expertise. Um, And um, beyond that, you know, I, I've just focused on building a great team around me because that's really what helps uh, someone be successful in their career. Nobody does any of this on their own. It's just it's all about the people that you surround yourself with. Yeah. Uh, thanks for sharing all of that with us. Uh, Melissa Greenwell, COO of The Finish Line. Her new book is Money on the Table, How to Increase Profits Through Gender Balanced Leadership. You can buy the book Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. 
Thanks for being on the show today. Thank you, Catherine. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, Joining me this morning is Alexandra Stein, Ph.D., social psychologist and author of Terror Love and Brainwashing, Attachment to Cults and Totalitarianism Systems. What are the dangers of extreme psychological control? Social psychologist Alexandra Stein draws on her 25 years of study and research to explain how almost anyone, given the right set of circumstances, can be radically manipulated to participate in dangerous and incomprehensible acts. A survival of a political cult herself, Dr. Stein, draws upon her own experiences as well as stories from a range of religious, political, and commercial cults in order to portray the psychological impact of these environments. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Alexandra. Thank you. Yeah, Glad well, to be it's here. very yeah, great to have you here. Uh, very timely because when let's could you describe for us an obviously, I guess, uh, uh, Cults conjure up, a, to me anyway, a feeling that they are very dangerous. Um, so what specifically are the dangers of extreme psychological control? Because that's what we're talking about. Well, I think simply it means that people aren't making decisions anymore based on their own survival interests, but their kind of decision-making is really taken out of their hands and somebody who wants to exploit them is then making those decisions. And so we see, as a most extreme example, um, for instance, the ISIS suicide bombers, um, who, you know, I would believe have been subject to brainwashing processes. Um, and, you know, these are not decisions they're making that help their own survival or their family's survival, but they help the people who are controlling them to get to their goals, which are not so in the case of ISIS, way. in the case of ISIS, what is the process? How, what is the process well, of this? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I think let's, I actually, though I use those, them as an example, there are many people who are much more expert than I at that, about the actual detailed processes. But I will speak generally, and I believe that this is the same thing that happens to the recruits in ISIS. But in my study, for instance, just to kind of illustrate the range, um, I looked at people who are ex-members of a supposed left-wing group that was based in New York um, and that wasn't outwardly violent, um, but also um, had these methods of extreme control over people. And 
Um, so anyway, those in short, and the book obviously has this in long, but in short, if you isolate people from their usual social situation and from any alternate sources of support or information, and you engulf them in this new system that you have created and its own realities, and then if you arouse a kind of um, chronic trauma in them so that they are um, their kind of cortisol, their adrenaline, their anxiety levels are in a chronic state of arousal, you can really gain a lot of control over people because when people are fearful, they turn to other people to seek comfort. This is just a universal human characteristic. And if you've isolated them so that you, and I say you as a kind of predatory, uh, psychopathic figure, um, if they force them to turn to you for their security and their kind of direction. And we can see this, um, I think a lot of people can understand this more easily if I talk about the situation of controlling domestic violence. You know, when a, usually a man, not always, um, isolates a woman, you know, starts checking her telephone, telling her what clothes to wear, um, controlling her finances, uh, she can't speak to her family anymore, and then is kind of that combination of, well, as in the title of my book, Terror and Love, so frightening her, but then bring roses and apologies the next day. These are the kind of dynamics that are very, very dangerous and can result in people losing their own sense of autonomy and agency and giving it up, not because they want to give it up, but giving it up out of a kind of powerlessness to the person who's trying to gain that control. Well, uh, that's a good example, and uh, actually, as a social worker, that's the kind of ex- the, those are the kinds of of uh, issues that I have dealt with with families, mm-hmm. and, and as you say, domestic violence and domestic abuse, physical and psychological, or mm-hmm. you know both. Um, but then you, you your stories in your book, there's a whole range of you know religious cults, political, commercial. What's the is there a difference in those, or a difference in what you've just described in terms of like the, the like in this case situation with a uh, with two people uh, husband uh, partners well I'd say that yes there are differences the kind of core psychological dynamic is the same but the differences are in a way more on the so speak outside so in a religious or political culture you also have an ideology or a belief system And that has particular qualities in that it is what we call total or exclusive. So in other words, if you buy into a particular political cult or or a religious one, the follower has to believe everything that they're told and believe that this applies to all situations throughout history and forever into the future. And there's no other belief system that has any bearing. Whereas in a non-cultic politics or religious belief, you know, you may b- believe in that b- set of beliefs for your religious and spiritual feelings, but on the other hand, you may turn to, you know, a scientific explanation for something else. Um, but in a totalistic belief, that particular belief system dictates everything, and you're not, you're not even allowed to look elsewhere for other answers. So you don't get that in the personal one-on-one relationship generally. Although well, you, you do get the survive- word of the perpetrator is total, yeah. but it's not a <laughs> constructed belief system. And also, of course, in an organization, it is a group rather than just a one-on-one relationship. And particularly in the larger organizations, you may not have any contact with the leader at all. I mean, in the group I was in many years ago now, um, from my mid twenties to my mid thirties, I never knew who the leader was until after and this I got was a out. political. This was a political cult. Right? It was. It was a, again a supposed left wing political cult. I say supposed because it never really did anything that one would consider left wing. But I thought that's what it was as I entered it. But I, I didn't know the leader, and so it's not this. Often people think cults are this kind of hypnotic, you know, look into my eyes, you know, kind of thing. But it's more the social structure 
So, you know, as I entered that group, there were these really nice, intelligent people who seemed to share my values of social justice and equality and have a program that was about social justice and equality. But by the time I kind of got further in, this whole structure of isolation and secrecy, and I couldn't tell anyone what I was involved with. So, you know, if, if you're super secret, which again is a, a, a quality of cults and totalitarian systems, if you're super secret and you can't discuss with anyone outside the system what you're experiencing, you get no what we call social validation. And all of us really look to the to our friends and family and to other sources, you know, am I really seeing what I'm seeing or am I crazy? But in a cult, you just start thinking you're crazy because everyone's saying, you know, it's like the emperor has no clothes, right? You know, you're seeing the emperor without clothes, but everyone else is saying, no, no, he's got clothes on, right? And well, so, how did you, how did you, because I'm really specifically, how did you, uh, I guess, get into it, it just initially? I mean, is it something that just ha- sort of happens insidiously and you suddenly find yourself, you know, in the midst of like, the behavior that you're describing? Or were you looking for something? Or, uh, you know, for you personally, what exactly happened? I mean, I, I was definitely looking for something. I was also definitely not looking for a cult. I was looking to become a political... Well, I had already been. I was living in San Francisco and at the time. And I was had been a political activist, and I wanted to continue being a political activist. And I thought this organization, because on the outside, this organization was a political left-wing organization. And I wanted to do work... For around working women and childcare and healthcare for women and all these perfectly laudable things. And so, you know, I met people who, you know, and they were sort of involved in those things. What I didn't know was that behind that was this crazy guy, to use a clinical term, um, who was pulling everyone's strings. So that part was gradual in that I started getting involved and I started meeting with people and it all seemed familiar from my previous political work. But there were some differences and one of the differences was the secrecy that, you know, we were doing really important work and we shouldn't tell anyone because, you know, if the state, you know, or the police found out, we'd be in trouble. Not, we weren't, by the way, doing anything illegal. So... You know, there's an example of had I had some education before I got into this thing about how to recognize a manipulative person or group, you know, there were warning signs that I could have paid attention to because, you know, I was a very independent, young, feminist woman. I wasn't someone looking to be controlled. Um, But I had never been taught some of the things that I'm trying to explain in the in my book and I'm now passionate about this idea that we have to teach young people what are these warning signs of what I call dangerous relationships and secrecy is one of them and isolation you know if I had to teach one thing I would say anyone or any group that is trying to isolate you from your prior life that's a very big warning sign of someone who's trying to gain control and power over you. What about susceptibility? Are there certain people who are more susceptible than others? I mean, obviously, you're a PhD, a social psychologist. Maybe you weren't at the time, but, you know, obviously a very bright person. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, still, you weren't aware, you didn't know the warning signs or necessarily how to extricate yourself in the beginning. So, um, are there people who are more susceptible emotionally? Well, there's been a lot of effort by, you know, various scholars and government agencies because of the links to extremism now. They're very keen to find out, you know, who is vulnerable. So there have been a number of studies now, and we are not finding a kind of common profile of someone who gets into cultic systems. It's just not there. I believe that what makes people vulnerable is ignorance, um, they, I mean, cults in specific 
certainly don't want dysfunctional people because they want productive people who are going to, you know, help do whatever the leader wants them to do. Uh, they don't want people who are going to be a drain on the system. So it's certainly not kind of dysfunctional people. Um, they, however, ignorance is really a vulnerability factor. And, you know, that's, that was certainly my issue. The other thing that they, we are finding is that people who are in what we call a normal life blip, so any kind of normal life transition, when you're a little bit between things, so, you know, you leave home to go to university, or you leave university, or you get divorced, or get married, or have a bereavement. You know, these kind of things when people normally are kind of a little bit in a different situation, if they have the bad luck to run into a dangerous organization or a dangerous relationship, that situation makes them more vulnerable. But that's not a personality variable, that's a situational variable. And do you think these leaders, these totalitarian leaders or the head of these cults are aware of that? They know who they can go after or who they, you know, have the other members of the cult go after? They can pick them out? Um, yes, I think they intuitively do know because, you know, I, in my view, they're kind of sociopaths or psychopaths. And, you know, one of the ways we look at those kind of people is that they have very good insight into other people's behavior and other people's uh, pers uh, personalities. They don't have insight into their own behavior and their own motivations. So I think, yes, they can kind of spot people who they, and also who they can manipulate, and also they will try, and they probably aren't going to waste a lot of time on someone who's not, you know, at a vulnerability point or who's not responding to their efforts. Um, you know, it depends, really, because some of these organizations are very small and some have, you know, hundreds of thousands. So it's hard to... Again, sometimes they kind of morph into more organizational um, structures, in which case it kind of gets institutionalized, some of these practices. And, you know, we can think of certain large religious groups who are giving out pamphlets on the street, you know, there it's almost become a, a, a kind of process, like a, a, a factory process almost. You know, some well, people are going to take that pamphlet because, you know, they're a little open point in their lives and then they might come to a meeting and then there's a kind of process established that's going to pull in people. So it runs the gamut from, as you say, from... Well, from two people who are involved in a, issues of domestic violence to uh, hundreds of thousands of people. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and even yeah. states. I mean, I consider North Korea, for example, to be a totalitarian state. And it's fascinating to read the memoirs of people who've escaped. There are a number of them that have been published in the last few years because you see these very same dynamics, including the secrecy and also what you see in... North Korea, which is the same, I really recognized it from my cult. Um, there's this kind of two layers of mental processing that people have. So on the one hand, you're living this life that's pretty horrible because life in a cult or a totalitarian system is, is not a happy one. You're living this kind of miserable life where you're overworked and you're sleep deprived and you're not having a lot of personal joy and happiness. But on the other hand, you have this layer that's coming from the cult saying, what a wonderful life you're having, and everything's great, and you know, you're doing great for humanity. And those strands of your mind kind of are operating very separately until the point you get out, and you can start to kind of realize you've been living in this kind of fictional world of lies. And in North Korea, it's very extreme. So if people are interested in this topic, I, I do recommend some of these recent memoirs. You can really see that um, contrast between happy, wonderful North Koreans and the terrible rest of the world. Meanwhile, these, the people are actually starving and utterly miserable. Um, but a similar thing happens in cults. Very, very similar. 
So, so what do we do about of, it? Sorry? Well, you said one of the things that people, maybe not in the case of, of North Korea, but uh, in other kinds of cults, people get involved because they are ignorant. They don't have mm-hmm. not only the experience of being able to evaluate the situation, but they just don't have the, and they don't have the information. We've established it's not a good thing, obviously, to be controlled by anyone else or any, in, in, you know, a totalitarian person um, or, or political system, for that matter. So how do we educate people so or educate individuals so that that doesn't happen and um yeah well i think we probably and i've thought long and hard about this um because i think we're quite a long way from getting there and we need to start somewhere and i suspect we probably need to start at the university level and that we need to start bringing in, for a start, a lot more courses on social psychology because that discipline, in a way, started after World War II or a large chunks of that discipline began then in answer, trying to answer the question of what happened in the Holocaust and how could you know, these kind of ordinary good Germans have participated in the genocide that occurred. And so we have this... 70 years of scholarship from that time. People may have heard of the Milgram obedience experiments, for example. Anyway, there's, there's a whole lot of scholarship up till today, and people like myself, ex-cult members, getting higher ed- education degrees and researching this field. So we, it's not that we have a shortage of knowledge, but that knowledge isn't being disseminated in the educational system. And, you know, if I were to wave a magic wand, I would have that be disseminated in universities. I would also have um, very, the same way that we've educated people about domestic violence, you know, in a kind of public health mode. So, for instance, now, I think often for women who go to the doctor, the doctor may ask, do you feel safe at home, right? Or social workers may be alert to problems. I would like those professionals to also be educated to spot, is this person in a group where they're not free? And how are their children being treated in this group? And does the parent have the ability to protect the child? Because in cults, that's not usually the case. So I think we need to educate at the university level. We need to educate our professionals. And eventually, I would like to see all children at all levels of education get basic education in what is a safe relationship and what is a dangerous relationship. And we do this, we have made progress in doing this about child sexual abuse, right? You know, there's a lot of good stuff children are learning about um, good touch, bad touch. But we also need to learn this and teach our children about, so to speak, good psychological, quote, touch and bad psychological touch. You know, what is a bully? How does a bully operate? If someone keeps flipping from charm to um, threats, that's something, you know, we can teach people that's dangerous. That person isn't safe, um, along with isolating you and so forth. So I think we can go from the very complex with, you know, looking at all the great scholarship to these really simple concepts. But I really think we need to start, and we need to start now because this is a very prevalent problem in in society and i think it seems to be coming more doesn't it seem alexandra doesn't it seem it's more prevalent on all levels that you've described the you know the political the individual Mm -hmm. uh, governments yeah yeah. i think at the highest levels if i might say so the u.s government and the changes that are happening right now we could use some of this information I think, you know, for someone like myself, it's very frightening. I recognize some some very dangerous behaviors um, in our president-elect. You know, I really do. Uh, And I think if we can name them, you know, that alternation between kind of assault and, quote, charm or, quote, love, you know, that's a very unpredictable kind of dynamic and we see it in our personal relationships. We know people like that, and we know that they're not necessarily safe to be around. And I think 
we, yeah, this knowledge needs to be disseminated and people need to understand what the consequences are of giving up one's control. Not on purpose, not because you're seeking to give up your control, but because you get trapped in these systems. Uh, we get trapped, and, and I would agree with you, and I think part of the problem also is um, we dismiss sometimes that behavior. There's sort of a, we, that we dismiss, well, this person or this leader doesn't really mean it. Um, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's not really something that I have to deal with. For some reason, we, just as a, as a culture, we do that. We tend to do that. Um, and, you know, and so I think that's an issue. Like one mm-hmm. should not dismiss their intuition or their analysis mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Yeah. And I think the very behaviors of these leaders tells us to dismiss them. You know, that's part of that that dynamic, this kind of throwing you off balance. You know, I'm going to be horrible to you, but now, oh, no, I was just joking. So that itself sets up like, oh, okay, well, maybe, maybe I didn't really read that right. You know, it makes us question ourselves. But if you do have some education, if you've... If you've looked at this a bit and you see how these how people respond to that, it can help you notice it, you know. And again, I want to use the example of the good touch, bad touch. You know, if someone, if you teach a child that someone touching a private part of your body is wrong, that can help them when that if that person is doing that and justifying it by saying, "Oh no, I'm just being friendly" or something. You know, if the child knows that's wrong, that gives them some defense but if they've never been told that they're kind of like oh okay well who do they believe and i think that's well, if you have the, the information I, I agree with if education information obviously then when something does happen whether it's political as we're just talking about or whether it's within the family um you don't question yourself as much because you you are you do have all of that information to, to kind of to call upon, which I think is important. We only have a minute left, and so uh, mm-hmm. I, this has been a fast, yeah, great conversation. I just want to obviously mention your book again. I'm talking to social psychologist Alexandra Stein, PhD, author of Terror, Love, and Brainwashing: Attachment in Cults and Totalitarian Systems. We can buy the book where just quickly. Um, basically online uh, bookstores uh, and from the publisher Outledge. People can also reach me at my website, alexandrastain.com, if they wish. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Um, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinesox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 